God's Word, I invite you to turn there with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 33. While you're turning there, let me just say that um, I've really enjoyed these times that I've come to be with y'all to worship and to, uh, this past fall, came a couple of times to preach and uh, here again. And we always find the fellowship so warm the uh, worship so uplifting. It's just a delight and a joy to, uh, to be with you all uh, this morning. Uh, Ephesians 5, and if, you, if you're looking at a pew Bible, you may fa- find that on page 979. It was on that page at the pew Bible that I was looking at. Um, this is a familiar passage. It, Paul is talking about the gospel, and he's applying it to relationships, and he's applying it specifically to the relationship between husband and wife. And so if you've heard this passage preached on before or taught, likely you've heard uh, a sermon or a lesson that's dealing with marriage, because that's what Paul's talking about. But I don't want you to think about that today. Um, What we're going to focus on, what I want to call your attention to in this passage, is not so much the relationship between husband and wife, but the relationship between Christ and his bride. Uh, Because Paul's talking about both of these through this passage, and I think that that really just singling out that relationship between Christ and his bride will then in the end bear fruit as we think about uh, other relationships. Uh, but uh, let's, let's look through that lens. And if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word. <clears throat> this is God's Word from Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's come before the throne of grace. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, you have uh, declared it to be your specific intent and purpose to get glory for yourself in the church, to make your glory shine through her so that the watching world might see an unmistakable representation of your character. You have declared even in this very passage that you do this through the washing of water through the word. Would you do this, Lord? Would you use your living word to work within us, your people, to purify your bride, to make your bride beautiful? For we ask this according to your will, according to your word, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. I want to share with you something that's been uh, a struggle for me in my faith, a challenge. Um, one, of the, one of the more significant challenges 
Uh, in John 13, uh, 35, Jesus is the, the setting. In John 13, is Jesus is about to be crucified. He knows this. And he's meeting with his disciples for the Last Supper. Uh, in that chapter, Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And he's talking to them. Uh, he's telling them some of the most important things that have been on his heart that he shared with his disciples throughout his ministry. And he kind of does this as a conclusion for his ministry uh, with his disciples. And, uh, and he tells them this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you what? If you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. You can tell that that train of thought, that logic is on his mind uh, throughout that night because as later as he prays the high priestly prayer, he's praying for the unity of the church that they may be one even as Jesus and the Father are one to this end so that the world may believe that you have sent me, Jesus tells his Father. That is to say that the world uh, draws the conclusion that the Father has sent the Son because they see love in the church, they see unity in the church. And, and furthermore, that the world would be justified to draw the conclusion that the Father has not the, sent the Son if they don't see love in the church. And as you may guess, the, the struggle for me in my Christian life is at times I don't see love in the church. I'm sure you've all come across instances uh, like that yourself as you see the church whether it's a local church or it's a denomination or denominations interacting with one another and we see a lack of of love in the church when we have challenges like this uh, struggles when I have a struggle like this with with my with my faith what am I to do how am I to address this biblically well I think this passage is very helpful to address this because it takes really the, the very root of the problem in hand and addresses the root of the problem. Uh, how is it, right, when I see the love that's, I see a, perceive a lack of love in the church around me, I have to recognize it's not just a lack of love that's out there, it's also in here. And not just because I'm part of the church, I mean, I really see that I, I really blow it in a lot of ways. I, I see there's lots of opportunities for community in the church that I don't really engage in, and other people do better at community than I I do. I'm an introvert. I enjoy time alone, um, and uh, and I find it a struggle. Uh, so, how am I to address myself with this with this passage? Well, if I want to cultivate love in my own heart and in my church, the, what's the beginning place of that? First John four nineteen tells us we love because He first loved us. Uh, love isn't something we just simply cultivate on our own. It doesn't just uh, come from our own hearts as the source. It comes from seeing the love that He has for us. We are powerless to love one another, especially in a supernatural way uh, that's, a, that's a witness and a testimony to the watching world. We are powerless to love one another well if we don't experientially grasp the love that Jesus has for us. So I want to do that. I want, I want to look at how this passage opens up for us the way that Jesus loves his bride, delights in his bride. And so, uh, first of all, I want, to, I want us to see from this passage that uh, Jesus shows his love for the church and that he pays a high price for her. It's the price that's paid. There's really no higher price conceivable than the price that Jesus pays for his church to make her his own. Uh, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, the ultimate price. And of course, when we see that, he gave himself up for her. I, I don't think it's just merely talking about physical death, that Jesus physically died. He did that, certainly. 
But when you think about Jesus suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is uh, sweating drops of blood, uh, he is telling his disciples that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't think he's just concerned about the prospect of death that's before him. It is, it is something far greater than that that he sees before him. He's, he's praying to his Father, and each time we're told that the same subject matter comes up as he prays to his Father in the garden, and it's that this cup that's before him would, not, would, would pass from him. He asks that that would be, would be possible. Well, what's in that cup? What is he so distressed about? What is this giving up of himself that's in view? Uh, well, for one thing, the Father was to forsake him. This is the most intimate relationship that's ever been throughout all eternity uh, in all of this world. More than one person has ever loved another. It's the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit uh, as well for all eternity. And, and in this kind of relationship, you know, we, we, have, uh, we can enjoy a closeness in our relationships, our human relationships. But it pales in comparison to that relationship, not only because of time, but because sin enters into all of our relationships. There was no sin between the Father and the Son. There was a perfect love between the two of them. And so to suffer rejection in that relationship would trump any rejection anybody has ever felt. I think what Jesus was feeling and experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane was a suffering greater than any human being has ever experienced or ever will experience because he was recognizing that the Father was going to reject him. He was going to reject him so that we would know that we are not rejected. He was going to forsake him so that we can know that we are not forsaken. He, in that cup as well, he was about to, to bear our sin. What's in that cup? Well, it's Jesus, who is perfect, was about to become sin for us. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And so he was about to take up our sin. Now, I, I don't like my sin. I don't like it when people sin against me either. Uh, I could maybe even at times say that I truthfully hate sin, but I know that I don't hate sin as much as Jesus hates it. And that's just one sin that I'm thinking of, and, and just one person that I'm thinking of, myself. But Jesus took up not just my sin, and not just one sin, but all of my sin, and all of the sin of all of his church, and not just all of his church from one generation, but all generations from the beginning to the end. Jesus took it all up upon himself so that that sin was his, and he owned it. This was what was in that cup. And then he was to bear the Father's wrath. As he took on that sin, he was to bear God's infinite wrath against sin. Even any one sin has God's infinite wrath against it, because it is, uh, it's committing an, uh, an offense of infinite proportions, because it's a sin against an infinite God. And yet, uh, God hates that even one sin with, a, with an infinite hatred. And yet, Jesus took up not just one sin, but all sins on himself. And it is upon the Lord Jesus that the Father's wrath was poured out upon the cross. There is no higher price conceivable than the price that Jesus paid for his bride. And he proves that he loves his bride in paying that price. One, the same thing could be said of the Father. The Father proves that he loves the church because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Whatever things you experience in this life, whatever suffering it is, we can go back to this proof. I know that Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. I know that the Father loves me because he's not spared his own son. And so we see Jesus' love for his church and the fact that there's no higher price that could 
could ever be paid, and He paid it for us. And then we also see Jesus' love for the church and how closely He holds the church to Himself, how closely He is united. He has united Himself to the church. Uh, there's no, closest, no closer union. Uh, there's no one closer. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a, a relationship. This union is described as a marriage. Other places in Scripture it's described as the vine and the branches or uh, the relationship of the, of the body, uh, Jesus being the head. Uh, here in this passage, uh, notice that Paul's using both. He's using both marriage and the body to describe this union that we have with, uh, with Christ. Skip down to verse 30 to see as well this, uh, this union that we have. Because we are members of his body. There's the, the body analogy. And then verse 31 as well. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. In verse 30, we are members of his body. The King James includes this. We are of his flesh and of his bones. Of, of the same organic structure. The same body. We are united with Christ in this, in this body. Charles Hodge says about this, uh, The union between Christ and his church is more infinite, in- intimate than any connection between Christ and any other order of creatures. We are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Think about that. Not even the angels enjoyed this kind of close union with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not said to be one with Jesus. There is no other creature under all of heaven that Jesus has permitted to be this close to him. And we are made flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. He is the creator. He spoke into nothing and made everything. By his power, all things exist. They're sustained by him. They are made for him. And yet he wants to be one with us, to make us his his body. And you see this in a number of ways uh, in the passage, in the context. We are Christ's fullness. If you have a Bible there, just turn back to Ephesians 1 and look at the end of Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. We are his fullness. <clears throat> Paul says, And he, that is the Father, put all things under his feet, that is Jesus, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. As, as Paul's trying to explain how the church is Jesus' body, he goes on to explain it by saying the church is the fullness of Jesus. The fullness of him who fills all in all. When we think about God who is, as our, our, our catechism puts it, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being and wisdom and power and holiness, justice and goodness and truth. There, there's nothing lacking in God, Father, Son, or, or Holy Spirit. And yet we find in, in Ephesians 1 that, that we are his fullness. And it, it almost sounds like heresy when you think of how complete God is by himself, and yet we find this is how Scripture articulates this, this relationship between Christ and the church, what church, the church is to Christ. Calvin puts it this way. I better stick to quoting um, on this difficult ground here. John Calvin, This is the highest honor of the church, that until he, that is Christ, is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are in his presence does he possess all his parts or does he wish to be regarded as complete. Again, Calvin 
As a bridegroom, he is incomplete without his bride. As a vine, he cannot be thought of without the branches. As a shepherd, he cannot be seen without his sheep. And so also, as head, he finds his full expression in his body, the church. How do you put those two thoughts together? That Jesus, uh, as, as Calvin puts it, measures or thinks of himself in some measure imperfect, incomplete without his church. And yet we also know that Jesus is fully complete in and of himself. How do you put those two things together? I think one way that, that's helpful to me is to think of the analogy of, uh, as, as the analogy is used in this passage, of a husband and a wife. Uh, a, uh, husband and wife, as they've lived their life together for many years, have a close uh, love for one another. And then, uh, say for instance, the wife dies after many years. Uh, if that husband were to think and to feel as though he had lost part of himself, as though maybe he had suffered an amputation, in the loss of his wife. We wouldn't think anything less of the husband for feeling that way, would we? Uh, because he is one with his wife. And I think that's a, a picture that helps me uh, to understand how we are the fullness of Christ. It's not as though Christ is, uh, in some measure, uh, imperfect in himself. But he loves his bride so that if he were to lose her, which is impossible, if he were to lose his bride... Uh, that he would, uh, he would feel as though he'd lost part of himself. We are Christ's fullness, Scripture tells us. Uh, we also see this union in the fact that we are identified with Christ, and he is identified with us. See how tender this, this love is as he identifies himself with us. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, if you see that in your Bibles, you'll see that in quotes. Why is that? Well, it's quoting the Old Testament. It's quoting Genesis 2, uh, 24. Um, Paul quotes uh, Genesis there. And uh, Jesus also quotes that same passage, Genesis 2, 24. And he quotes it in Matthew 19, 5. And as soon as he quotes that, just as soon as he says, uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and, the, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become flesh, one flesh, he, he follows it with this. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. The two have ceased to be two, and now they are one. That's the expression of how the Bible sees and how God sees a marriage. They're not two, but one. And that's also how the Bible sees, how God sees the union between Christ and His church. If it were not so, we could not be saved. The, the two are no longer two. It's not Jesus and the bride. It is the two made one. This can be said of no other creature in all creation. Jesus doesn't marry angels, but he marries his church. He makes her his beloved, his delight, and he identifies himself with her. Christ identifies himself with her so that her lot is his lot. What happens to her, he considers as happening to himself. Verse 28, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. And again, Paul's talking not just about husbands and wives, but about Christ and his church. That's how Jesus loves the church. Verse 30, because we are members of his, his body, we are identified with Christ. Uh, her good he counts as his own good. The church's troubles and pains he counts as his own troubles and pains. Uh, Jesus talks about this when he's uh, speaking in that, that passage in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats. Uh, the righteous 
will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What happens to his church, he counts as happening to himself. There is no sorrow or pain or anguish that you feel that Jesus does not count as his own sorrow, his own pain, and his own anguish. Such is the love that Jesus has for his church. And there is no blessing that you experience or that the church can experience that Jesus does not count as his own. There's no spiritual victory that the church experiences that Jesus doesn't count as his own. Her lot is his lot. And this is, this is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel's founded upon, that we are identified with Christ and He is with us. Uh, for our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What was true of us became true of Jesus. He took our sin. What was true of Him became true of us. We became righteous as He is righteous. What is true of Him and His saving work is true of us. We are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. We are victors over sin and over death. Think about what this, what this means, who we are united with. This is the Lord and giver of life. This is the living one who died and is alive forevermore, who has the keys of death and Hades, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things are created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This one, the Lord Jesus, identifies himself with you. This one who is the ancient of days, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, identifies himself with you a creature of the dust, once alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, and he takes you up to be his own, and he identifies himself with you. How intimate is the love of Christ for his church? And then we see this, this close union in the fact that we are irreversibly joined together with the Lord Jesus, just as uh, a marriage is a, a union that is enduring. Verse 31 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, when Jesus quotes that in Matthew 19, uh, he says, so, the, the two are no longer, so there are no longer two but one flesh. And then he goes on to Matthew 19, 6. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Let not man separate. If that can be true of a human marriage in this world, how much more is that true of the marriage between Christ and his church? It is an eternal, irreversible bond that can never be severed. Christ and the church are inextricably joined so that they are forever one. And so rightly does Paul ask, what, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, your Savior loves you. And there's nothing that can change that. 
He delights himself in you. He has joined himself uh, with you. So there's no higher price possible to be paid. He pays it for us. There's no possible closer union. There's no one closer to him. He joins himself uh, with us. And the third thing I want to point out here in this passage is that there is, there is none that's more delightful to him than his bride, the church. He takes delight in us. He rejoices over us with singing. He has this, this delight uh, in us. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, how is it the husbands are to understand that they're to love their wives? Well, they're to, to look at how Jesus loves his church. There is this, this love he has for, for his church. Now, is it, is it possible that a husband might delight himself in his, in his bride? Well, yes. Is it possible then that he could say, I have a better love for my wife than Jesus has for his church? Because Jesus just puts up with his church? He doesn't just put up with us. He delights in us. He enjoys his church. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The the picture there of Jesus um, laboring to make his bride spotless is the picture of, of, of this man who delights in his bride. And delights in the church so that she is his greatest prize imaginable. And he labors to make her holy and spotless and and pure before himself. To present her to himself. Verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. He delights in his bride, the church. Every bit as much as any husband ever delighted in his bride. And actually infinitely more. In, in the, the book Song of Solomon, we have a description of, of marital love. Uh, and there's been, in, um, if you read commentaries on the Song of Solomon, you'll talk about how in the past people over-spiritualized uh, the Song of Solomon and made it just about the relationship between Christ and His church. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's truly and rightly uh, describing the relationship between a husband and wife, their love for one another, a romantic love. But that's just the point here in this passage, isn't it? That this union between husband and wife, the romantic love between a husband and wife, is a picture of the love of Jesus for his church. And so we can really say of the Song of Solomon that it's both. It describes marital love, but it also describes the love between Christ and his church. Song of Solomon 4, 9 through 10. Hear this as the words of Jesus to you. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and your fragrance, the fragrance of your perfume than any spice. This is the delight that Jesus has in his bride. He delights in you more than all creatures and more than any creature more than any heavenly creature, no matter how exalted. You, th- you think of those passages that describe heavenly creatures. Uh, it, these angels would appear. You see them in, in Scripture as they appear. And the people uh, who see them fall uh, on their faces though they were dead. Uh, they, they are terrified at the presence of these angels. They're amazed at the awesomeness of these angels. And yet it's not so much those angels that Jesus delights in to this supreme level of delight as much as it is his church that he takes this kind of delight in you. He delights in you more than all earthly creatures. 
think about the things that the Lord has made that, is, that are so beautiful. Uh, as, as we just enjoy things in, in nature, you can feel so small in the face of, of the beautiful things in nature that you behold. Um, I think I've even mentioned to you before about my wife and I going to, um, to Yosemite uh, on our honeymoon. We were standing at the top of Yosemite Falls looking down at the, at the valley below, some 4,000 feet below, and, uh, and it, was, it was breathtaking. You feel small in the face of those uh, gigantic granite cliffs. And, uh, and you feel small when you look up into the heavens and you see the stars. Uh, and you think that this planet that you live on is not even, doesn't even show up on the scope of the universe in terms of how small we are compared to this vast universe that God has made. And as you see all of that glory that God displays in creation, we have to recognize that, that God sees that He's displayed His glory more in the church than in all of creation. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Ephesians 3, 10. Backing up to get the context, uh, verse 8. To me, that is Paul, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God had made creation long before Jesus came to earth. His creation was there on display. His glory, as He shows it in creation, was already there in, uh, on display in creation. And yet, by comparison to how God shows His glory in the church, it's as though God's glory was hidden compared to how He shows His glory in and through His bride. This is God, what God considers His magnum opus, His greatest work. It is His bride. This is what Jesus thinks about you. You are His magnum opus. He delights in you more than in all of creation. And he delights in his church more than all the rest of, of mankind. Man is the pinnacle of creation. He says on the end of every day of creation, he has this refrain uh, at the end of each day, it is good. But he says something different after he makes man and woman. What does he say? It is very good. Human beings are the pinnacle of all of his creation. You think you see God's glory in, in creation. Well, look at mankind. God considers that he's displayed his glory even more in mankind. And yet, as the pinnacle of mankind, God takes delight in his church. He delights in his church more than all the rest of, of mankind. He has set apart the church for himself. Ephesians 2, 3, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's our natural status, and yet God calls us out of that status to be his own bride. Isaiah 62, verse 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. We are his delight. Isaiah 43, fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Uh, you can think of the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 1 where it, it talks about how God does not love the great things of this world, those who are noble, those who are of noble birth or those who are wise, but instead he has set his love upon the church. There are more beautiful people in the world than are gathered here. 
And God has not set his love upon the most beautiful people in the world. He has set his, church, his love on his bride. And he sees in his bride the greatest beauty among mankind. Such is his love for his church that he delights in her. Well, how is this, uh, this truth to change us? Grace changes everything. This is, this is grace. This is uh, amazing grace that Jesus would love us. Uh, as I began the sermon, I talk about what's, what's so difficult for me as I see a lack of love in the church. And we, we think about passages like um, verse uh, 27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And we have to realize, as the church doesn't love each other as they ought to, that this is a work in progress. Uh, he is laboring to make his church spotless, but they're not spotless now. How amazing it is that he has set his love upon a bride who is by nature so full of sin. How amazing it is that my father sent his son to die for me. That your father sent his son to die for you. How amazing is this, is this love? Well, this is grace, and grace changes everything. You know, the law can show us what's broken, but it can't change us. Uh, the theme and the context in which I'm looking at this, at this passage in terms of the love that's, that's lacking in the church. Think about that, how, how that relates to the law. What is the summary of the law? What's the first and greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God. What's the second that's like it? To love your neighbor as yourself. And, and so you could, you could summarize the whole of the law with one word, love. And, and in fact, that's what the law is. It's, it's an articulation of what love is supposed to look like. You say you love, but this is, this is really what it's supposed to, to look like, down in the nitty-gritty details of life. Well, the law can show us our sin. The law can show me how I don't love like I ought to. But that doesn't have the power to change me. Being exposed in my lack of love doesn't have the power to change me. It's the gospel that has the power to change me. It's being loved by the Lord Jesus that has the power to change me. And so rather than being frustrated with the church or being frustrated with one particular person in the church or, or being frustrated with a particular situation or frustrated with myself, I have to remember 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. This is where the power to love comes from. The command to love does not empower to love. Receiving love is what empowers us to love. And it touches everything. And so, um, just a, a couple of specifics of how we could bring this, bring this home to ourselves. Uh, first of all, love Jesus. Is this love mutual? We, we've had described to us how Jesus delights himself in his church, how he loves his church, delights for his church to be close to himself. Well, is that love mutual? Do you delight for Jesus to be close to you? Is this love mutual or is it unreturned and unanswered? There's the starting point. If you would have a love for others, you have to have this love cultivated first to love the Lord Jesus. Is, is Jesus to you the chief among 10,000? Is he to you the pearl of great price for whom you would sell all? Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade. His fruit is sweet to my taste. Is Jesus sweet to you? Well, then meditate upon his love to you until it is. Jonathan Edwards 
says this, Great and glorious as he is, yet he with all his dignity and glory is wholly given to her to be fully possessed and enjoyed by her. Possessed and enjoyed by her. Do you realize that Jesus is your possession? Isn't that what God says as the covenantal uh, uh, language about how he talks about his relationship with his people? I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be your God. This God is our possession. To be fully possessed and enjoyed by her, Edwards goes on, uh, to the utmost degree that she is capable of. My beloved is mine and I am his. This is, this is to be our expression of our love for Jesus. Is he first in your heart and in your life? Is he first in your, your desires? And second, and, and I think obviously, um, this applies to our love for our, our spouse. Uh, love your spouse as Jesus loves his. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loves his bride. Is it possible that in the marriages represented here in this room, is it possible that at some point a husband might have at some point been irritated with his wife? I think that's possible. I think it's, um, it's possible that that's even happened in my case. Um, what, here's the solution that we have. It's, it's set out right before us here in this text. Consider that Jesus loves your bride as described here. He loves, it's not just an expression of his love for you. This is an expression of how he loves your bride, your wife, your, your husband. Jesus loves your spouse like this. Your spouse is forgiven. Your spouse is delighted in. Your spouse is rejoiced over by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that the next time you're irritated with your spouse. Maybe you'll be able to use that this afternoon. Um, so love your spouse as Christ loves his. And identify yourself with your, your wife so that her lot is your lot. Her good is your good. Her troubles, your troubles. That's how Jesus loves his bride. So love your, your bride that way. Delight yourself most in your wife. You've heard the uh, expression, I, would, I think it's possible, you've heard the expression, love is a choice, not a feeling. Anybody heard that? Love is a choice, not a feeling. I, I don't like that expression. Um, it, it's true that we should choose to love, but if you merely choose to love, but the affection is not there, it falls short of the love that we are called to have in Scripture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ's love for his church, thank God, is not a love without affection. He delights in his bride. Love is a choice, not a feeling. Well, far, far from it. Love is a choice, but it's more than a choice, and it's also an affection. Jesus does not choose uh, to love us merely, but delights in us. He does choose us, but he also delights in us. And so love your spouse as Christ loves his church. And then finally, uh, love the bride of Christ. As, as we began thinking about uh, the failures in the church, how the church ought to express more love for one another, uh, ought to be a better witness before the watching world in her love, in the way she loves uh, one another. Um, the church is what she is, and Jesus loves this spotted church and sees her in the end product. He knows his righteousness is set upon her. He knows the work that he's doing in her, and he delights in her. And so the challenge that's before us today is to love the church, to love these ones who are seated around us, to love other churches, to love other churches in our denomination, to love other denominations, uh, to love 
the bride of Christ because Jesus does. We love because he first loved us. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When we consider the heavens, even the highest heavens, what is man that you have made us and that you care for us? And yet we thank you, Lord, that you have so loved us as to lavish upon us such great love that you would call us flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone, Lord Jesus. That you would delight yourself in us. Lord, would you use this, your word, in us to wash us? Would you transform us by having seen your love? May we not be like someone who looks into a mirror and forgets what we look like, but that we would look into the perfect word of God and be changed by what we have seen in seeing our Savior there. For we pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.